I don't know if you're familiar with Mark Twain. Uh, uh, he wrote some uh, really great books of, uh, of different sides, of different sorts. Um, he wrote a, of a couple of famously most uh, wrote about uh, Huckleberry Finn uh, and Tom Sawyer, whose relationship with church you may recognise or you may not. Um, if you look through his books, you're actually spoiled for choice uh, for the illustration that I'm going to uh, uh, go through this morning. So it says here, uh, the minister gave out his text and droned along monotonously through an argument that was so wordy that many a head by and by began to nod. And if that is something familiar to you. Um, eventually, Tom remembered a treasure he had, and he got it out during the meeting. It was a large black beetle with formidable jaws. <laughs> a pinch bug, he called it. The first thing the beetle did was to take him by the finger. Tom jerked, and the beetle went floundering into the aisle and onto its back. And the hurt finger went immediately into the boy's mouth. The beetle lay there, working its helpless legs, unable to turn over. Tom eyed it and longed for it, but it was safe out of his reach. Other people, uninterested in the sermon, found relief in the little beetle, and they eyed it too. Presently, a vagrant poodle dog came idling along, sad at heart, lazy with the summer softness and the quiet weary of captivity. Sighing for change. The poodle spied the beetle. The dropping tail lifted and wagged. He surveyed the prize and he walked round it, smelt at it from a distance, walked around it again and grew bolder. It took a closer smell and then lifted his lip and made a gingerly snatch at it, just missing it. It made another and another and began to enjoy the diversion. Um, the dog dropped to its stomach with the beetle between his paws and continued its experiments. It soon grew bored of the beetle and then his head nodded and little by little the poodle's chin descended and touched the enemy who seized it. There was a sharp yelp, a, um, a flirt of the poodle's head and the beetle fell a couple of yards away and leaped once more onto its back. The neighbouring spectator shook with an inward joy, several faces went behind fans and handkerchiefs, and Tom was entirely happy. By the end, the whole church was red-faced and suffocating with suppressed laughter, and the sermon had come to a dead standstill. It was a genuine relief to the whole congregation when the ordeal was over and the benediction was pronounced. Tom Sawyer went home very cheerful, thinking to himself that there was some satisfaction about divine service when there was a bit of variety in it. If you have ever been a child in church, you may recognise that scene. You may, uh, uh, it may come to your mind that that sounds delightful, a large pinch bug on its back and a dog attacking it. Some sort of distraction from the droning monotony up the front. You see, Sunday meetings can be a terrible combination of monotony 
and mystery. Telling children to aspire to love and goodness uh, and truth can seem attractive at first. You know, these things, something a child goes, yes, I would like all those things. However, a child quickly finds out that constant behaving is impossible. It, uh, it is impossible to be good all the time. It is impossible to be truthful all the time. It is impossible to be still and quiet like the adults want all the time. And so children become impatient. They see that people moralising and just telling them what to do is for the birds. It takes an adult, someone who is practised in hypocrisy to enjoy a sermon on a Sunday and then systematically behave the complete opposite way for the rest of the week. It takes an adult to nod serenely during a talk about love, truth and justice and then live for themselves Monday through to Saturday. On top of ancient religious practices, uh, on top of sort of the boring and falsehood of moralism, uh, they have ancient religious practices and precise theological terms which add to the snooze fest of a sermon and it becomes a type of torture. It is very hard to love a complex system of sacrifices in Leviticus or the wordiness of the Apostle Paul if there's no love of the Bible in the first place. In fact, even those of us that do love the Bible can feel a little put out by Leviticus and some of Paul's statements. What can be done? Are we doomed to forever look for stag beetles and flies and children mucking about to distract us from the boringness of sermons? How are we supposed to live with religion? Let me read something from uh, Romans chapter 7. I'm reading uh, the message translation. So if you've got an NIV or ESV or something else, um, you're going to be shocked that um, I deviate from such authorised scripts. Um, but we're going to have a look at Romans chapter 7 and it says this. The law code had a perfectly legitimate function. Without its clear guidelines for right and wrong, Moral behaviour would be guesswork. Apart from the succinct and surgical command, you shall not covet, I could have dressed covetous up to look like a virtue and ruin my life with it. Don't you remember how it was? I do perfectly well. The law code started out as an excellent piece of work. What happened though? was that sin found a way to pervert that command into temptation, making a piece of forbidden fruit out of it. The law code, instead of being used to guide me, was used to seduce me. Without all the paraphernalia of the law code, sin looked pretty dull and lifeless, and I went along without paying much attention to it. But once sin got its hands on the law code and decked itself out in all that finery, I was fooled and I fell for it. The very command that was supposed to guide me into life was cleverly used to trip me up, 
throwing me headlong. So sin was plenty alive, and I was stone dead. But the law code itself is God's good and common sense. Each command is sane and holy counsel. I can already hear your next question. Does that mean I don't even trust what is good? That is the law. Is good just as dangerous as evil? No, again. Sin simply did what sin is so famous for doing. Using the good as a cover to tempt me to do what would finally destroy me. By hiding within God's commandment, sin did far more mischief than it could ever accomplish on its own. So I've got this quote up. Sin, sin simply did what sin is so famous for doing. Using the good as a cover to tempt me to do what would finally destroy me. Paul precisely details why saying be good is really important, but also so useless. It's really important to say to people, don't steal, but it ultimately doesn't get you anywhere. To live in harmony with God and with people, we cannot just make up things as we go along, how we feel we should behave. We need those rules, we need that law code. And that clear code is most accurately detailed in the Bible, nowhere else is it precisely given like it is in the Bible. We need to know what is right and what's wrong. However, just as righteousness is laid out in all its glory, our internal curse of sin corrupts this. It's like telling a child, now this might be a little bit too specific to me, but it's like telling a child in the back seat not to annoy their brother and sister before that moment it hadn't occurred to them. And then suddenly their entire being is all about prodding, touching, fidgeting and annoying the sibling that is next to them in the back seat of the car. Moral teaching is important as it brings light. But the thing is, you and I, we love darkness. And just telling you what to do is uh, not going to help you. Because we love darkness. And we will cover ourselves in it at every opportunity. Apparently, a quote from Buddha. Peace comes from within, do not seek it without. So we have this grim predicament that humanity has wrestled with from the beginning. How can we live in harmony with God and each other? How are we going to deal with the fact that we know what is right and wrong so often, but we have this compulsion not to do it? And there have been a lot of answers over the generations. Some people have said, what we need is more rules. You need to be more specific about what you can and can't do. Some people have said, no, what we need is more punishment. There needs to be more consequences to the things people do. Uh, some religions, and Buddhism would be the, forget yourselves, forget 
desire. Become anonymous, become at one with the universe. And once you leave all that behind, you'll find truth. And some faiths, and often this is true for uh, the heretics in Christianity, you just need to try harder. You just need to try harder. You need to try harder not to steal, not to commit adultery, not to swear, not to gossip, not to uh, do the things that the Bible details. But it's true, isn't it, that despite all these different strategies, selfishness still abounds. You do not find a culture where there is evil absent. Infidelity, greed, rage, gossip are still around in every society that's ever been. Despite every mechanism they've had to tell you what the truth is, punish you if you don't do it, and call you to a higher standard of behaviour. Our victory over sin is sporadic. Sometimes we uh, achieve it on the Sunday and then it all goes to pot on the Monday. And so we're left wondering, I wonder if I've done enough. Well, no, I've done enough to please God. I wonder if I've done enough to live in harmony with everyone else. There's a question people often ask at, their, at the end of their lives. I wonder if I've done more good than evil. I wonder if a big good I did, you know, gave some money to some poor people, uh, uh, I wonder if it made up for all the little evils, like all the cross words that I used that were out of order. I wonder at the end of life if there's an appeal process by which I can appeal a decision made against me. Wonderfully and happily, in Philippians, Paul shows us that this universal, sticky problem can be dealt with. There is a way of uh, understanding this problem and a way of seeing it solved. Um, if you've got a Bible, a message Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 3. It says this. The real believers are the ones the Spirit of God leads to work away at this ministry, filling the air with Christ's praise as we do. We couldn't carry this off by our own efforts. We know it. Even though we can list what many might think are impressive credentials. You know my pedigree, and this is the Apostle Paul talking. You know my pedigree. A legitimate birth, circumcised on the eighth day, an Israelite from the elite tribe of Benjamin, a strict and devout adherent to God's law, a fiery defender of the purity of my religion, even to the point of persecuting Christians, a meticulous observer of everything set down in God's law book. The very credentials these people are waving around as something special, I'm tearing up and throwing out with the trash. Kids, if you're watching, it's actually rubbish, but he's American, isn't creaky. I'm tearing up these and throwing out with the rubbish, along with everything else I used to take credit for. Why? Because of Christ. 
Yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life, compared to the high privilege of knowing Jesus Christ as my master firsthand. Everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant. It is dog dumb. Great turn of phrase. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I can embrace Christ and be embraced by him. I didn't want some pity, petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ, God's righteousness. I gave up all that inferior stuff so I could know Christ personally experience his resurrection power, to be a partner in his suffering and go all the way with him to death itself. If there was any way to get in on the resurrection from the dead, I wanted to do it. Paul was not only a good Jew, he was an excellent Pharisee. And he imagined that following the rules and working really hard to do so would make him spiritual, would make him in harmony with God and with people. He imagined that God would be in dead chuffed that he'd done so well by being so obsessive. But he had an encounter on the road to Damascus and it blew that illusion completely out of the water. Being good is not good enough. Being good was no good. Just behaving meant that he had no assurance before God and it meant that he had nothing to offer other people. But by trusting on Jesus' death on the cross, Paul found the solution to the quandary that humanity had struggled with forever. The eternal consequences of sin before a holy God was solved. By Jesus dying on the cross, he was no longer a criminal to be judged forever. He was white and pure. But more than this, the power that sin had over him, this curse that continually caused him to prefer the darkness over the light, it was broken. He could live in freedom. The Holy Spirit could help him live well. Instead of trying really hard to change himself, the Holy Spirit brought him to change his affections. Because of what Jesus had already done, Paul could know he was saved. It wasn't a toss-up for when he got to the pearly gates. He could act without selfish ambition and could stand confidently in the presence of God. Compared to knowing Jesus, being good was dog dirt, horse manure and cow dung. It's what kids know when you moralise and tell them to be good, to sit down, to shut up, to tell the truth. They know that they can keep it up for so long, but then it all go to pot. And this is why they turn off and look for beetles on the floor and poodles to attack them. I really hope everybody, both in this room and listening online, you are familiar with this. I really hope uh, 
I am telling you something that you know deep inside your heart. This faith we have isn't about being good. Don't be good. You can tell someone the difference between right and wrong. It can help them for a little bit, but often it just makes things worse. If this is new to you, if you thought being a Christian was about being good, then I uh, suggest that you look into this a little bit more deeply. Perhaps talk to someone that you know uh, knows Jesus. Because it's not about being good. It's not about following the rules. It's not about doing what the law code says. These things just illustrated a point. If this is familiar to you, if you are leaning back and going, I just thank you God for your grace and your mercy. If this is something that just gladdens your heart and you love to be reminded of it, then I implore you to treasure it. Don't forget it. Don't swap it for moralism again, where it all becomes about behaving and colouring in between the lines and doing uh, uh, what you're told. It's all about grace. It's all about forgiveness. It's all about what Christ has done. It's all about the fact that you can't do it, but Jesus can. And as you treasure this grace, avoid these two equal and opposite errors. Don't pretend you can add to it can't add to it. Even if you become the pastor of the biggest church on earth, you cannot add to the grace of God. Even if you sell all your possessions, give everything you have to the poor and prophesy and become a world-renowned spiritual leader, you cannot add to what Jesus has done. And similarly, don't be negligent of it. Don't treat it um, as having no cost. Don't leave it behind and just uh, uh, just dismiss all the rules as now you are forgiven. You've got to uh, appreciate what God has done and listen to the Holy Spirit in his calling of you. Now everything I've talked about so far has been with a specific uh, goal in mind. I have talked about all these things, everything from poodles and beetles to dog dung, to get to the point where we can read the next bit of text with a degree of intelligence, with a degree of illumination. Because we often take this next bit out of context and get confused by it and suddenly revert to that moralism that all children around the world know is utterly rubbish. You need to remember that grace. You need to remember that mercy. You need to remember that all your uh, best efforts at being good are dog, dung, horse manure and cow dirt. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 4 verse 8. It says this. Summing it all up. Friends, I'd say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling and gracious 
The best, not the worst. The beautiful, not the ugly. Things to praise, not things to curse. Put into practice what you have learned from me. What you heard and saw and realised. Do that. And God, who makes everything work together, will work you into his most excellent harmonies. Love that idea of being worked into a most excellent harmonies. For someone that cannot sing or play a musical instrument, that sounds a delightful prospect. <laughs> we who lean on Jesus don't just have a different philosophy of life. We don't just have a different approach. We have an entirely new identity. We're not trying to make the best of the world. We live with a longing for something else. That passage I've just read from, if you didn't know about grace and mercy, you could imagine it was just someone telling you to be good. Think about true things. No, no, that thing you're thinking about, stop thinking about it, think about the good thing. No, no, whatever you're thinking about, that violence or anger or rage or uh, other immoral practice, stop that, stop. But you can't help it, can you? It just goes on and on. Whatever people tell you to stop thinking about, it just becomes even more attractive. And you could be mistaken in thinking that's what Paul's talking about. Think about good things. And instantly your mind wanders to the bad things. But Tom Sawyer would read that and he would yawn and go, just stop telling me to be good. And he would look for distraction. But this is not what Paul is doing. It's not all the work he's done in Philippines up, so, up to this point so far has been about establishing a different basis to look at this passage. He knows there is very little power in just telling someone what to do. It won't work. No one has ever done exactly as they should have done, apart from one man. The whole of Christianity is based on the fact that you can tell someone to be good till you're blue in the face and they will again and again frustrate your efforts. I want to read you this. Philippines 3 verse 20. Just a little bit before. There's four, far more life. There's far more to life for us. We're citizens of high heaven. We're waiting the arrival of the Saviour, the Master, Jesus Christ, who will transform our earthly bodies into glorious bodies like his own. He'll make us beautiful and whole with the same powerful skill by which he is putting everything as it should be, under and around him. We who lean on Jesus don't just have a different philosophy of life. We have an entirely new identity. We don't just have a different set of rules, we have an entirely new identity. We are not trying to make the best of this world. We have a citizenship in heaven. This is not my nationality, this is not my identity, this is not where I am from. I uh, belong to the kingdom of heaven that is coming soon. And so the challenge is how to live. We don't abdicate responsibility by abandoning this world to itself. We don't get to just live perpetually in church meetings, singing happy, happy songs 
and uh, uh, just ignoring the world at large. That is not what Paul wants from us. And we don't abuse our privilege. We don't say, you know, I'm a citizen from heaven. I can pollute the world as much as I want. I can rape and pillage because it's all going to end and then the kingdom of heaven comes again. That is exactly the opposite of what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, you are a citizen of heaven. Look for the beauty in this creation. Focus and celebrate the things that whisper of this kingdom of heaven that is to come. And that is why um, he says, look at me. Look at what I do. Find the things that I do that celebrate this coming kingdom. Friends, we live in troubled times, perhaps more so than we have for a long time. As we live through these troubled times, I don't want you to be good. Paul doesn't want you to be good. Jesus doesn't want you to be good. Don't just follow a list of rules and hope you'll get into heaven. That is empty and futile and Tom Sawyer rightly sneers at you. It's a denial of grace. You are saved by what Jesus has done. And out of the fullness of that salvation, look discerningly at life. Find things which echo the gospel. Find things which are beautiful and pure and rejoice in them. Paul isn't saying, try hard to be really pure, try hard to be moral, try hard to be truthful. He's saying, find the stuff. Look around you, open your eyes and just lift up that moments of God that surround you. We are to applaud our society when it celebrates sacrifice, when it celebrates selfish, selflessness, when it celebrates truth. When we, yes, we, we belong to that kingdom. That is part of what Jesus is going to bring. When we discover opportunities to bless our fellowship, when we discover opportunities to bless the world, we don't dismiss them, we don't forget them. We don't do them begrudgingly. We look at them and we zero in on them and we get thrilled by them and we try and thrill others by them. Let me close with these uh, um, examples of this in real life. Many of us feel an inner collision between the old life and the new one. One executive told me he sold his entire company and didn't even keep any of the money because it only made him miserable. Another executive told me he was trying to implement a sliding scale wage based on family size that valued everyone equally so that the CEO was not making more money than the janitor or receptionist. One friend in the military left because of his reborn identity is now, and is now painting murals and preaching non-violence with us here in Philadelphia. It's sort of like if you work for a pawn shop and have a conversion experience. Most of us would probably agree it's a good idea to rethink your career track. 
But why wouldn't we do that for other born-again disciples? What if someone works for Lockheed Martin, the world's largest weapons contractor, or a notorious human rights abuser like Coca-Cola, Nestle, Disney or Gap? We have had many people, professionals, parents, economists, nurses, military officers, come through our community and begin asking fresh questions about their vocation, what the voice of the Spirit is calling them to do with their lives. This is exactly what Paul is talking about. Find the pure, find the truth, find the good, find the righteous, find the noble. Not everyone responds exactly the same way. Some will give up their houses and leave their fields. Others will offer their possessions to the community and form hospitality houses like Mary and Martha. Others will hold back from the common pool and lie to God and they will be struck dead like Ananias and Sapphira. Just kidding, hopefully. There are the Matthews who encounter Jesus and sell everything, but there are also the Zacchaeuses who meet Jesus and then redefine their careers. So not everyone responds in the same way, but we must respond. We must seek our vocation, listening to the voice of God and the voices of our suffering neighbours. Both Zacchaeus and Matthew responded to the call of Jesus in radical ways that did not conform to the pattern of the world. Here in Philadelphia, I have a friend called Atom. He's a scientist who uses big words and usually needs a translator. He started working on his PhD when he was 21. Then he started hanging out with the folks here at The Simple Way and reading the Bible. His initial reaction was to leave everything and become a bike, a bike messenger and pray all night. His mum recently introduced me as one of the people who messed up her son. But the more he saw God and his gifts, the more he felt his own vocation emerging. As he studied science in the context of his global neighbourhood, he saw that the lack of access to clean water was the biggest killer of children in our world. Over 20,000 die each day from curable waterborne diseases. Economists predict that within the next decade, the leading cause of violence and war will not be oil but water. So Atom has dedicated much of his life to studying and working with indigenous communities to solve this sol solvable crisis and all hugged out of a simple life on our block in inner city Philadelphia. And perhaps this is a little bit more realistic for some of us. A while later his sister Rachel joined us. She had gone out to one of the leading culinary schools in the country and worked at a fancy restaurant downtown. She once sneaked Atom and me into a $100 a plate dinner where we fit right in, stuffing our pockets full of food so I cannot pronounce the name of As she read the scriptures and hung out with friends in poverty, her gifts began to come to life. She made cookies with kids on the block and made fancy dinners with folks on the street. It's not every day our homeless friends get lobster. Both Atom and Rachel are ordinary radicals continuing to discern their vocations and spend their lives for others. Friends, find whatever is noble, whatever is good, whatever is true, and concentrate and focus on these things. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we often forget, but we are citizens of heaven.
our uh, identity is not in the here and now, but it is in this coming kingdom. Lord God, I pray that you'd help us live like that. Lord God, I pray that you'd help us look at the world like that. Help us find nobility and truth and goodness and self-sacrifice. And Lord God, I help us amplify that. Help us to uh, base our lives on that. Help it, for it to guide our vocations. Lord God, I thank you that you have given every single one in our congregation a vocation. None of us are excluded from this calling. Lord God, I pray that you would help us discern and zero in on the way that we are to make uh, this world better. Lord God, we would love to be that fragrance of Christ. We would love to be that harmony that causes other people to fall in love with you. Holy Spirit, we realise just telling ourselves and other people to do this ain't going to cut it. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would change our affections. Cause us to fall in love with the noble things of life. Cause us to fall in love with the lovely things. And Lord God, I pray that you would take us in the direction that you would have us go. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.